Welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Contreras Show. Did you see that crazy video of a dump truck pushing a Mini Cooper across the Gardner Expressway? Well, we asked truck drivers to weigh in on what they think was going on there. You'll also hear about some of the worst hit businesses by the pandemic and what they're hoping to get from the government. But let's start with Kelly's conversation with Dr. Michael Warner from the Michael Guerin Hospital about the lay of the land in Ontario's ICU rooms. Chris Creston follows Dr. Michael Warner on Twitter and occasionally we'll talk back and forth about what's going on with respect to our situation as far as Toronto hospitals go during this pandemic. And yesterday, uh, Dr. Warner reached out to Chris to let him know that things are indeed on the rise when it comes to our hospital system and uh, the ICU numbers of COVID-19. So he joins the show now. Dr. Warner, good to have you on. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So first of all, let's start off with how bad things are getting in the hospital system. Where are we at? Uh, we're in a bad place, Kelly. So uh, I mean, my focus is on ICU. I sit on the provincial table for critical care. So I have oversight. Not, I don't have oversight, but I have a view on, on everything that's going on in the system. Just today, Kelly, we're moving nine uh, patients across the province because ICUs are full. Uh, we're moving as, patients as far as Kingston from Toronto. Uh, there are six hospitals in the GTA that are moving these patients uh, because they're uh, over full. Um, just mm-hmm. this past weekend, I was taking patients from other hospitals as rescue transfers because they've exceeded their capacity, and we've reached 383 patients in Ontario's ICUs with COVID-19. There were 351 two days ago. Our peak from wave two was 420, which will likely exceed. So uh, yeah, the things are things are not good. I was on call till eight o'clock this morning, and. Uh, I can tell you that you know, just overnight we admitted uh, two new COVID patients at our place. So uh, things things are happening in a negative way. Okay. Well, the ICU room number that we reported today that the province is reporting is 333. You just said 383. What's the discrepancy? So there was where a Toronto Star, Toronto Star article from March 6th where I was quoted and where the, the province actually provided feedback. So what the province does, Kelly, is that they look at patients who are admitted to the ICU with COVID-19, and two weeks after their COVID test, they take them off the list because, in their view, they no longer have COVID, even if they're on a ventilator or on a heart-lung machine or you know, dying in the ICU. They take them off the list, which artificially lowers the number. Critical Care Services Ontario uses the true number, which is 383. That's the accurate number. That's the number we use at the provincial table. That's the number uh, Ontario Health uses. That's the number... David Williams uses, it's the number all the modelers use uh, to look at ICU capacity. So the government is misrepresenting the number mm. of patients in Ontario's ICU perennially. They said in the article that they were going to fix it, and they haven't. And I think this is really important because it misleads the public to think that things are better than they are. And sometimes doctors like me are being accused of lying about numbers, um, but the numbers that we use... Uh, the critical care service in Ontario are the numbers. I mean, I take care of these patients. Believe me, they have COVID, even if the government says they don't. So it, it really bothers be- me. I got to tell it you, it bothers me that I'm being misled because if I'm being misled, then I'm telling people uh, the numbers that I'm uh, being uh, told by the government, uh, you know, on a daily basis, and I'm misleading people that are listening to the show, and that that really irritates me as well. So, is this wh- what's behind? Um, the government misleading us as far as ICU room uh, COVID patients go? Is it so that they can continue to reopen um, and, you know, look good to the people that are frustrated? 
uh, you know, I'm not going to presume they have some type of nefarious plan, but uh, I think that it's important that people know the true numbers. And I right. think the, the the government official who is quoted in the article as saying he would he or she would fix it, it was Lindsay Davidson. Uh, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. The premier will quote the low numbers. He was quoting numbers less than 300 last week. We have fewer than 300 patients on Ontario's ICUs with COVID since Christmas. That's when we passed the 300 threshold. You know, it's been 90 days straight. So it's incredibly irritating, mm-hmm. and uh, they need to change this because they need to be truthful with Ontarians. Yeah, I think we're all operating under this uh, assumption that things are getting better because we are getting more vaccines into people's arms. We've started to reopen patios in the red zone. We've loosened some restrictions, allowing people to get into restaurants and, and increase the amount of people in restaurants. I want you to just go back a bit here and describe what you meant by a rescue transfer, because you had said at the beginning of this conversation that you have started to uh, transfer uh, patients from your hospital to elsewhere and taken in people. What exactly is going on and why is this being done? Well, there's the Ontario Critical Care Command Table has oversight over all the patients in the system. And they weren't pulling patients out of my hospital. I mean, I'm looking at the list right now, but they're pulling patients out of Scarborough, Trillium, William Osler, Humber, McKenzie, um, and sending patients to hospitals that have capacity because those hospitals don't have capacity for any patients. I mean, people think that there's room in ICUs because they see a bed number on a list, but people have to remember that unless there's a nurse taking care of a patient in that bed, that bed doesn't exist in real life. So, you know, it's great that we have such an integrated system of critical care, and to be honest, it's kept the whole system above water because we work so well together as a system, unlike some areas of the healthcare system, so it's a success story. But think of the stress that puts on a patient and their family. If if you get a call saying your mom or dad's being moved from a Toronto area hospital to Kingston two and a half hours away... Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that, we don't, that does, doesn't happen. That's never Are happened. we transferring COVID patients or are we transferring other COVID. patients that are in the ICU for something else? We're, we're transferring almost exclusively COVID patients. Huh. Yeah, we're trying yes. to... Because, because, Kelly, they require a level of care that is higher than the average patient. They're, they're on a ventilator. You know, twice as, it's twice as common that a COVID patient is on a, is on a ventilator compared to the average ICU patient that... that adds a layer of complexity. Their length of stay usually exceeds 15 days, so the bed doesn't turn over very quickly. Obviously, there's infection control challenges as well. And so we're trying to redistribute those higher-intensity patients across the province so that um, one centre, like Toronto General, which has 29 COVID patients today, isn't uh, overwhelmed. How risky is a transfer if you've got COVID and you're on a ventilator? Well, and whenever you transport a patient, it puts the patient in a, from a safe situation to a slightly less safe situation because they're in an ambulance or a, an aircraft or you know, a helicopter or fixed wing. These are transports usually done by ambulance because you can't really practice infection control appropriately in a, in a pressurized aircraft. But, uh, you know, the paramedics are exceptionally well trained. I've never had an experience where there's been an untoward impact on a patient while they're transported. Mm-hmm. Those paramedics definitely put themselves at risk, and uh, there's only so many crews who can do this. So there's only so many patients you can transfer in a given day, especially if you're driving two and a half hours to Kingston. Wow, um, are you transferring more people, or, or hospitals transferring more people right now than they were in the second wave? Uh, you know, we, we've been transferring patients the whole time. Just today, I've never seen this many patients moving in one day. Wow. And uh, I'm, you know, getting calls from my regional lead saying, can I take patients, even though I had to move a patient out of the ICU in the middle of the night to accommodate a new patient. 
you know, things that we're, we're, we're kind of working off book because we're trying to care for the most number of patients. So just, I just want to get back to something you said mm-hmm. before, because you were know, you under the perception that, not you, but people are under the perception things are getting better because yeah. restaurants are going from 10 to 50 people you know, in some red zone restaurants if they have that capacity and patios, which actually I think makes sense, are open. So there's a disconnect between the reality in the hospitals and the perception of the public, which I think is promoted by the Chief Medical Officer of Health. Because he's not telling the story that we're seeing in the hospitals. People want good news, which I get. But you know, the vaccines are here, but they're not in arms. And I think it'll take two or three months for this to have an impact on the healthcare system. Because we're starting with the oldest patients, which makes sense. But the ones with the highest exposure risk, the factory workers, the ones that I actually see on the ventilator, they're not going to be vaccinated until June or July, uh, as, as per the phase two rollout plan by the government. So it's not going to move, move the needle for us in the ICU, especially when the government is holding back vaccines in the freezer because they're worried about having to cancel appointments. I mean, we need to meet the moment. This is an emergency, and people want things to get better. So you think that's a mistake holding back? Um, 100%. Yeah, it's a a terrible mistake. Uh, I mean, it's it's like holding something that's potentially life-saving back because you don't want to go through the annoyance of having to call people to reschedule an appointment. That's illogical. You know, supply chain, you know, you know, operations, supply chain, et cetera, the premier can say that they're complicated and he's experienced with it, and I'm sure he is. But this is an unprecedented situation. I mean, this is, this is life-saving medicine, and this is not the time. They should go from the airplane to people's arms as quickly as possible, and family doctors need to be the ones doing it because that's what they've done their entire career. That's where you go to get your vaccines, and they've been cut out of the process, which leaves their patients, the ones they know, the ones they can identify as being the most vulnerable, you know, left standing in line at, uh, at a mass vaccination site. But haven't they been cut out of the process because of the nature of the vaccines and the temperature that some of them have to be kept at? AstraZeneca and Moderna can be kept very easily uh, in the refrigeration that a family doctor has. 100% Pfizer was different, but we're, we're, we're not really giving out Pfizer. So I think that that argument doesn't make any sense. And, uh, you know, family doctors need to be part of this. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are the solution to the problem uh, in, in many ways. And we still have over 200,000 people over the age of 80 who have not been vaccinated in this province. And most of that's because of access. You know, the, you know there's hesitancy, sure, but you're more likely to get vaccinated if your family doctor, who's, who may speak your language, who you trust, who you have a relationship with, can explain to you the benefits and risks for you, as opposed to some stranger jabbing you at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. Like it, okay, it, Doctor, I want to ask you about um, something that I read at the... Uh, well, there's a couple of questions here in one. Uh, or a couple examples in one question. But yesterday we had a caller call in and say they were talking to their doctor and their doctor and all the people in the doctor's office said they weren't going to get vaccinated, which I found odd. Now, that's just an anecdotal um, story from one of our listeners. So I don't have any way to follow up on that. That's what I was told. But we're finding out today, CBC News said that they uh, saw an email, gained access to an email sent by the uh, CEO of the University Health Network to roughly 4,000 employees that had not registered for their COVID-19 vaccines on Monday. Uh, do, do you, what do you have to say about that? I mean, why are health professionals not, you know, racing to the queue here? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, I don't work at UHN, so I don't know what's going on on the ground there. 85% is actually a pretty high vaccination rate when you think about past vaccination campaigns for influenza. But what we found, let's take long-term care, for example. And let's say we vaccinated 95% of the residents of long-term care. It was around 50% of the people who work there, which I find really surprising. And I think it depends on where you get your news. And, you know, in our hospital, we 
we divided, you know, the, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the housekeeping staff, et cetera. And, you know, the people who chose to get vaccinated uh, almost 100% were the doctors and the respiratory therapists, the ones who probably know the most about COVID from firsthand experience. And then as you move down the chain to people maybe who have less medical background, um, who may get their news from different sources, there was much more hesitancy. So I think that it's incumbent on the government to make sure that people have the best information, the most accurate information to make an informed decision, which, I, which is why I think family doctors need to play a bigger role in this to help overcome hesitancy, which is a legitimate thing that people have. Uh, because believe me, Kelly, it's far worse to get COVID than to potentially have some type of reaction to a vaccination because COVID kills. I've seen are, you seeing, are you seeing a difference in the uh, people coming in? Uh, during this, you know, some people said we're fully in third wave. I would imagine you're one of the people that believe that. Uh, have you seen a difference in demographics lately? I, I'm hearing that maybe younger people are coming in and have to be or having to be ventilated. Yeah, I know my sample size is too small to make a kind of a sweeping comment, but yeah. uh, I think that the variants are more transmissible. The youngest people, including those ones who are going to be working in the restaurants that are open in the areas around Toronto, are almost by definition not vaccinated. Uh, most people who I've, you know, I've, I've filled out 27 death certificates for COVID-19. I've said this in the media before, you know, three of the people were not visible minorities. Uh, you know, this, this whole thing is about the social determinants of health, racialized, marginalized, poor people, essential workers. Those are the ones who are getting nailed by this. Those are the ones who have not been prioritized, whether it comes to testing or the vaccination strategy or communication strategy. And those are the ones I'm trying to advocate for when I'm on the radio with you, because those are the patients that I see. And, Let's bring it uh, back to uh, something that's happening today, the budget. How important is it for you, based on what you just said, to see the government uh, come out in this budget and say they are going to pay uh, for sick days or implement some sort of legislation for sick days? Uh, it, it would be inhumane if they didn't do that. I mean, the, the federal program does not meet the needs of the patients that I see because you can't take time off to isolate while you're waiting to get a test result, let alone get a test. Uh, we need paid vaccination time. Saskatchewan has done that. We, you get paid time off to vote. Why not get paid time off to get a vaccine so you don't die? I mean, it, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. It makes, you know, I think what they said about, you know, providing funding for transport for people for dis with disabilities and elderly people uh, to get a vaccine, that makes a lot of sense at $3.7 million. We'd save far more money if this pandemic ended sooner because more people got vaccinated or didn't get sick in the first place. I mean, that's the return on investment. So hopefully there's something for people not just for businesses, but for people, because that will end up helping businesses down the road. Uh, Dr. Michael Warner, it's always interesting having you on the show. I think there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, look at you as a breath of fresh air. And there's also people that, you know, listen to you and say, ah, oh, come on, you're making too much out of this. Let's just get on with our lives already. In closing, what do you say to those people who say that you're just overreacting? Oh, Kelly, people have said far worse things to me than that. But, uh, you know, I'm on the radio not because I want businesses to fail or because I want people to be isolated or depressed. You know, I'm the sharp end of the stick. I see people die from COVID-19. You know, I've seen it many times and I see people suffer. And I think that if we take this very seriously, uh, it's more likely that everyone will be better on the other side. If we drag this out and try this, you know, alleged balanced approach of trying to keep things open, keep people safe, it's not going to work because it hasn't worked. And that'll just drag things out for longer and more people will die. If you're vaccine hesitant, please talk to your family doctor or someone you trust about the vaccines. I think they're safe and effective and they'll save your life. 
And I encourage the government to be as aggressive as possible protecting people and getting vaccines from fridges and freezers into people's arms. All right, we'll leave it at that. Dr. Michael Warner, head of critical care at Michael Guerin Hospital. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Canadian businesses hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, especially, uh, have formed a coalition. And they actually call it the coalition of hardest hit businesses. They are calling on the federal, uh, the, they are calling for the federal wage subsidy and the federal rent subsidy programs to be continued until the end of the year. But what do they want from the province? Here to talk about it, Beth Potter. She's president of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada and one of the hardest hit industries, that's for sure, uh, since this pandemic started. Beth, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, Kelly, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So what are you hoping for when it comes to the budget and what uh, the province is prepared to do for the tourism industry? Well, um, we are looking for that ongoing support um, and investment into the industry to ensure that all of those businesses, um, businesses that provide you know amazing experiences and the opportunity to gather with friends and family, uh, that they that that they will be around when um, restrictions are lifted and we can start getting out and enjoying uh, attractions and events again. So, give us an idea of the support that you've received so far, and um, if that is actually you know uh, um, making a dent in in your uh, industry and its survival. Right. So. Uh, you know, the, the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy at the national level have been absolutely amazing. And and, and, uh, and the, the businesses that we've spoken to and, and the survey work that we've done um, over the past year indicate that about 65% of businesses would not be here if it hadn't been for those, those programs. Um, at the provincial level, you know, Ontario's had the, the small business support grant during the last lockdown um, and um, are in, and are starting to make investments into um, into programs and and businesses to get uh, and communities rather to get um, uh, ready to welcome visitors back. Um, so I, I'm hoping to see a continuation of that of that investment. Um, you know, in the last in the fall budget, um, they released. Um, the indication to us that they were, there will be a travel tax credit coming. Um, and I know that Minister McLeod and Minister Beth Bobby have been working on that with the industry. Um, so I'm not sure if we're going to see any more details about that in today's budget, but um, uh, it would be great if we did. Right. And we know that people, most people, uh, because of the pandemic, will be taking advantage of the the sites closer to home. They'll be doing staycations. So that tax break is a biggie. It's a big incentive. I mean, not that we need incentive to see our own backyard when we can't go anywhere else, but every little bit helps. It really does. And, you know, it, it supports um, those businesses that have, for a good chunk of the past year, not been open. Um, and uh, it also it, it supports... Uh, the the visitor because they have also been affected whether it's they've been affected because they've had to stay home um, whether they've had an impact on you know their income um, they haven't been able to see friends and family you know that takes a toll on mental health so encouraging Ontarians to get out and explore the province um, after 
after you know when the restrictions are lifted or when we're when when that that vaccine rollout um, is is nearing its completion, that's going to be really important this summer. I know a lot of uh, tourist sites are geared towards uh, getting a maximum number of people into um, you know their their point of interest. So how do you navigate successfully during the pandemic when you've got these pandemic guidelines uh, that limit the amount of people that can be in, in one space at a time? So I will tell you that uh, business operators have been very creative. Um, they've been working collaboratively together to put together uh, you know, protocols by which that they can operate um, and uh, and operate to their fullest capacity while still meeting the health guidelines. Um, and so it's going to mean uh, maybe a little bit of a different approach. So if you're going to go um, and you know visit, let's say you're going to go visit Niagara Falls, um, you might want to call ahead and make sure that any of the attractions you want to see, um, you, you want to know how they're handling admissions. So it might be that they, you have to reserve a spot ahead of time, or it might be that you have to um, purchase your ticket and it's a timed ticketed event. Um, you know, they're, they're working to make sure that um, that everybody can still uh, enjoy the experience, but that they can do so in a manner that uh, is in accordance with the with the health guidelines that are provided. Yesterday, Premier Ford said this budget will have two aspects, protecting lives and protecting livelihoods. Can you uh, speak to how many uh, communities rely on tourism for their local economy in the province? Um, almost everyone, <laughs> really. Uh, when you when you think about it, um, there are reasons to visit every community. Uh, whether it's you know a local museum, um, you're going camping in the in the vicinity, or um, uh, you know hiking, biking, um, you know taking a trail, visiting the local main street, visiting theater. Um, going for business purposes and and staying afterwards and eating in a restaurant, um, all of those things fall into our suite of sectors. And um, and so tourism, we we really do say we've got 444 uh, municipalities in the province of Ontario, and tourism is in every single one of them. You know, we always hear uh, you know about Canadian culture and how hard it is to put our finger on exactly what Canadian culture is. How important is Canada's tourism industry too, our, you know, being able to identify what Canadian culture is? It's incredibly important. I mean, you think about the, you know, the cultural makeup of our country, um, you know, it starts with the Indigenous communities and um, they, the Indigenous tourism uh, businesses are, are some of our most important um, in our uh, suite of sectors, simply because it's, it's different. It tells the story. It tells the history um, of our country. Um, but but our our country is a melting pot, and so we've brought lots of different cultures together, um, and we are a, an open and sharing people uh, here in Canada. And we we like to share what we do and and what we know best, whether it's you know uh, you know taste of place through food and drink or. Um, you know, showcasing uh, the great outdoors and, and all of the amazing recreational activities that you can do here. Um, so we're, it's a very welcoming um, destination. 
Uh, and Canada is known for that around the world. We're known to be a welcoming destination and a safe destination um, before COVID hit. And so uh, we're on a lot of people's bucket lists. Um, and um, we've got, you know, from coast to coast to coast, we've got so many, so many wide open spaces and so many great uh, kind of once in a lifetime uh, experiences. So it, it really does make um it, it, it's incredibly important, and that's and that's just on the experience side. On the mm-hmm. on the dollar side, uh, the Canadian tourism economy contributes 105 billion dollars to our national economy. We are uh, employing 1.9 million people, um, and so that's that's significant. Um, and when you think of you know, you want to break that down a little bit, you think 1.9 million people. What does that look like? What's that one in every ten jobs? Uh, is directly tied to our to our industry. I know that the uh, restaurant industry is really hoping that uh, in the budget somewhere they will have uh, that tax abolished that they have to pay on alcohol um, and and kind of even even the playing field between them and the LCBO because they are relying on on selling off sales for you know their business and you mentioned restaurants and how. Uh, you know, we have been one of those top 10 destination lists. And don't kid yourself. A lot of the reasons why Toronto's on that top 10 list is because the gastronomy in the city of Toronto is overwhelmingly um, incredible. Uh, but we've been seeing a lot of restaurants just not being able to make it through this pandemic. So how important is it that that tax be abolished to you? It's... Um... It's definitely something that we've been asking for um, and uh, for a long time. Um, and, you know, when we were able to get um, the province to agree with, you know, selling alcohol with takeout purchases, I mean, we, we basically were pr- able to prove, you know, the sky didn't fall down. Um, and and so this, the sale of alcohol uh, is an important part of that that. that taste of place experience um, and to be able to give the restaurant industry that has been so incredibly hard hit a little bit more margin um, would be incredibly important to them and to their well, level of, of an important industry. Well, Beth, fingers crossed, we'll be looking at the budget at four o'clock today and we'll uh, break it down, of course, on the John Oakley show. Thank you so much. I hope there's something good in the budget for you guys. I hope so too. And, and great talking to you, Kelly. Sound, you can pull that down, Rob, of a dump truck, which is um, pushing along a Mini Cooper for about half a kilometer up the Gardner Expressway ramp and onto the Gardner. It happened Tuesday morning, just right near Chorus Key, <laughs> a place where I'm familiar with because I always get onto that um, Lakeshore Jarvis Street uh, entry into onto the uh, Gardner Expressway. And it's a, it's, it's one where you have to merge. So there are people going right onto the ramp and there's people, uh, hanging, uh, kind of a, a left and then they go up to the ramp. So I guess this dump truck continued up the ramp onto the expressway, pushing the vehicle sideways the entire way. Now, I don't know if it's possible. They were charged, by the way. They're facing charges. I don't know if it's possible that this is the fault of the mini driver or the dump truck driver, but is it possible that the the dump truck driver did not see the mini? It's a mini Cooper. And I'm just wondering if you are a driver of a big truck or um uh you know, even a even a mini, 
Give us some insight into into how hard it is for people to see you or how hard it is for you to see them or if it's even possible to know that you're not pushing something over a half a kilometer. You got to be kidding. Apparently people were other motorists were waving the dump tri- driver down saying there's something on the front of your grill. Yeah, it's a Mini Cooper. You might want to stop. 416-870-6400. I want to hear from you if you're a truck driver or you know, you drive in one of these insanely small vehicles on the highway. Hey, Marcus in Brampton, welcome to the show. How are you, Kelly? I'm great. Do you drive a truck? I do. Okay. I and do. I don't drive a dump a... truck, but I drive okay. a tractor trailer. Uh, All right. So, yes, can you lose these? You can if they cut right in front of you and you maybe had a moment where you're checking your mirror and they cut right in front of you you don't see them. Sure. But this guy pushing somebody a half a kilometer on, a, on an off-ramp, uh, yeah, he should have noticed something by that point. Uh, Wouldn't you feel it? To be perfectly honest, no. Really? Like you're, so to give you an idea, when we roll down the road, depending on what we're, what we're hauling, sorry, I'm just putting my trailer on my truck right now, um, we, uh, we can have upwards of, you know, a gross weight of anywhere from 180,000 to 145, 150,000 pounds. So okay, so how, how far in front of you can you see? Just because I think this is a really great conversation to have on the air for the sake of everyone driving. I think there's a... You know, cars can see the- a lot in front of them, but I just don't think we know what what the sight line is in a truck. And I think that the belief is that you can see more because you're higher up. You can see further ahead, yes. But in front of you, depending on the model of the truck and and, and whatnot, uh, you're looking anywhere from about six to ten feet. Wow. It, okay, so it, it, six it, to ten feet. So if this, you said you'd know, how would you know if you couldn't feel it? You'd be like, well, I'm, you know, if, if you're just kind of going along, um, you, you'd feel extra resistance for some reason. Maybe it's not steering. Maybe it's the truck starts pulling. Uh, but unfortunately, right now, in the trucking industry as a whole, uh, there is a shortage of drivers. And there's a lot of people being hired that have no business being behind the wheel of a truck. Right. And have no experience. You can still, to a certain extent, go places and buy, buy licenses. You know, I... How- I can- how terrifying is is this as a, for uh, as a prospect of people not being experienced enough for you as a driver and for other drivers on the road? For other drivers on the road that are experienced, very scary. Um, there's a couple of websites I could delete, or Facebook pages I could direct your your screener to mm-hmm. that really, uh, especially if you're talking up north, we have videos. There's countless videos, guys passing in double lanes, not pass, paying any attention running guys off the road. There's truckers that are dying daily up on Highway 17 in Northern Ontario. Wow, that's frightening. Because you know what I'm going to do, Marcus? I'm going to I'm going to let you hook your truck up, your trailer up, but I'm going to actually put you on hold and let you talk to Chris because yeah. I, I would like you to pass that information on to him because it would be very helpful. Um, wow, thanks so much for calling in. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. You have a great day. All right, stay safe on the roads, by the way. All right, let's um, – oh, no, I dropped him. I dropped him. Call us back, Marcus. I apologize. That's me with my little trigger finger. And there was somebody in Caledon that we just dropped. I, I Somehow your phone dropped out. If you could give me a call back, because apparently this happened to you. I'd like to hear from you again. 416-870-6400. Hey, Ned and Aurora, welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm good. I mean, I was floored. Anthony Robart shared this video on Twitter, and I retweeted it. It's shocking to watch this dump truck pushing a Mini Cooper, which is now sideways, so the driver's side is against the mini, the uh, grill of the dump truck, for over a half a kilometer 
Honestly, that person not only needs new pants, they probably need a, a, a full new uh, leather interior of their seat cover. I, I would, in that case, I would have um, numerous bodily functions would have occurred if that was going what, on with me. What about the rest of the story? What happened to the guy in the little car? What happened to him? Well, apparently, uh, let me get to the rest of the story. Gosh, ask, ask a question. I will give you as much uh, information as I can. Apparently, he was uh, assessed at the scene, but not transported to hospital. So no, nothing other than severe shock, I would imagine. And obviously not big enough to get up into that truck and hammer that guy, because that's what I would have done. I would have gotten out and I would have hammered that guy. Simple. There's no way that he did not know what he was doing, that truck driver. Are you a truck driver? Yes, I am. Since Okay. And so you say that you would, would you feel it? Absolutely, you would feel it. He knew exactly what was going on, that truck driver. There's so no way why was it, Why know. would you continue? Well, for lack of a better word, and I don't know if you want to repeat this on the radio. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I love my job. Choose your words very carefully, Ned. Ignorance. How about that word? Okay, ignorance. So, um... That's, that's the attitude of most of the truck drivers today under... 75% of, I would say, 75% of the new truck drivers in the GTA have never had any other job in their life. They got themselves a truck driver, and now they're just hot-dogging it out there. That's why I'm retiring in six months, because I can't be out there anymore with these guys. Can't. Really? Are you frightened for your safety? Absolutely. Should these we be frightened for our safety? I mean, you're arguably safer, I would imagine, in a big rig than we are in our little cars, especially if you're driving something like a Mini or a Smart Car. I would like to take you with me any morning, Monday to Friday, on a ride out of the GTA to, let's say, London. At 5 o'clock in the morning, you would never do it again with me. You would say, thanks, but no thanks. Mm. I don't want to do this again. It's funny because you're just proving um, an inkling that I had, you know, uh, before this pandemic, I would drive in every day to the city, but 50 minutes back and forth because of traffic. It's I'm not that far away. It's just traffic's a nightmare. Um, oh. And I would, as quickly as possible get myself away from the wall of trucks because I would, I, I, I used to look at truck drivers years ago as the most professional drivers on the road. Now they, a lot of them terrify me. And unfortunately it's drivers like this that are giving truck drivers, the ones that are really professional drivers, a bad name. I've got one of the biggest, strongest trucks on the road. And I'm telling you, I cannot wait to retire in September. I cannot wait. And I will, and I will never drive a big truck again ever in the GTA. It is a nightmare. I don't care what anybody says. I've been doing it since 1984. It's over. It's okay, over. so e even truck drivers are at risk then from these guys. It's not just cars. Oh, you got it right. Wow. That is a scary prospect, especially because we move a lot on the 400 series highway by, via truck. I appreciate that call. Hey, Kyle, I can't believe this video. It terrifies me. It makes me very happy that I'm not driving on the Gardener right now during the pandemic. Watching this dump truck push a Mini Cooper sideways up the ramp and on the Gardener without stopping, with, without a care in the world. Now they've, they're, um, they have been stopped and I believe they are going to be charged, but, uh, wouldn't you feel this? Yeah, Kelly, I don't drive anything as big as a dump truck, but if I leave a site with a, a pylon stuck to my bumper or a piece of plastic that I picked up that I didn't see, yeah, I'll hear something and I'll feel something. And the, the road's making all sorts of squeaky noise against the, 
the plastic and things like that. There's no way. And not to mention all the gear changes he went through. He would have felt the drag going up the ramp, changing gears. There's absolutely no way. I might take this one know. step. I'm going to take this one step further. That person should have their license pulled. Forget charging. Well, Guess what? Yeah, you don't get to drive to the, a truck go anymore. The, go to the school that licensed them and, and ask them some questions too. Don't just, don't just, you know, the drivers just, okay, you say I can drive, I can drive. Well, somebody said he could drive. Yeah. You know, we keep hearing about these uh, shifty driving schools uh, and it's a scary, scary situation. I think we, we need to look deeper into this story, but I appreciate the call, Kyle. I want to let Andrew have the last word on this. Andrew, you come from a truck driving family. Does this video shock the heck out of you? No, it doesn't, unfortunately. Like, I personally don't drive a truck, but I come from a family, uh, a long line of, of truck drivers. They used to be the most careful, most professional, safest drivers that took care of their trucks and their loads. Um, now, if I'm ever driving beside or behind a truck, with or without a load, it's not, they are, they're incompetent. And it's scary that these people are allowed to drive the trucks they are driving on the roads of people. Right. What about the, the idea of stopping time? What do we need to know as um, car drivers and how quickly uh, a truck can stop? What the, the main thing that needs to happen is the government needs to crack down on these truck driving schools and people who are issuing licenses uh, because you can buy a license anywhere uh, with absolutely zero experience, take your license and start driving a truck the next day. Uh, they need to crack down and make sure the people who are driving these these trucks are experienced and know what to do in the situation that comes up where it's unsafe. It's, it's scary that these people are allowed to drive on the road. It really yeah. is. It's well, awful. terrifying. That poor person in the Mini Cooper. I guess they're rethinking it. If I'm in that Mini Cooper, if I was driving that Mini Cooper, you know what I'm doing today? Shopping for a bigger car. I'm getting rid of the Cooper. Yeah, there's probably going to be a little PTSD from feeling that from having that experience because you don't know when they're going to stop. They can't see you. You can't see what's going on. You're up on the gardener, so you're probably afraid that you could get pushed off. Um, uh, crazy. I did have one caller who called up. He didn't stick around, but yeah. uh, told me that he was pushed by a truck right into an intersection once just pulling out of a gas station. He pulled in front of the truck, probably too close. Mm-hmm. Didn't see that uh, truck uh, or the truck didn't see him there and he just got pushed right through now he wasn't pushed for half a kilometer uh but uh doesn't yeah, matter pushes how a that push. can happen you gotta yeah you gotta remember that they they can't necessarily see and when we're, we're listening to uh callers saying that the truck drivers aren't as experienced as they used to be mm-hmm. uh that, that take give them a wide wide berth around because uh that's nuts and also some other callers mentioned that the drivers are now, I don't know how accurate this is, but uh, I know we can't get to any more callers, but tallers, drivers are paid by the load for these gravel truck drivers. And as a result, they're trying to get back and forth to pick up their new load. So this truck from this video was, in fact, empty. You can tell because it was shot from way, way up above in a condo building. So there you can see that it's empty. So he was probably speeding along, trying to get to wherever he was going and uh, didn't care what what happened? Obviously, he stopped. So obviously, yeah. something happened. You know, I think we've punctuated that, you know, this is a weird story. This is an extreme case, but that drivers and trucks can't see, what did he say, 10 feet in front of them? So 
you've got kind of a blind spot in front. It's good to be aware of that as a uh, normal vehicle driver, as a smaller vehicle driver. Good to know that. But I, I also won't have a word of warning uh, from my own situation where I was actually stopped at a light and um, it was near a gas station and I was behind a truck, just like it was like an F-150 kind of size truck, but it was pulling a car trailer, like a big trailer, like big as a horse trailer, but you put cars in it. And I guess he thought he'd be con- I was in my sob back in the day and I, you know, had, I would say just under a car length between us, but we're stopped at a light. And uh, I'm driving a standard, so I know this guy's probably got no rollback back. And if he does, I kind of know how much rollback it is. And we're not on a hill. He actually decided to back up and let somebody out of the gas station and backed into me, but had no idea that he did that. I had to actually chase him down by going, because I thought, well, he's going to stop. And he just light changed and he started going. I had to chase him down and say, I need you to pull over and then kind of show him that he backed into me, but he didn't feel it. So there's not just a blind spot in front. There's also a blind spot behind. So just to be aware of that. Anyhow, sharing my story so you don't have to deal with that. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, this is just a taste of what happens on the three-hour show every weekday live, 9 to noon on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.